This week's sponsor of the Ortho Show podcast is Koha Health. At Koha Health, their goal is to empower your practice to achieve total financial health. Their team of revenue cycle experts is here to guide your practice to success by improving your financial process so you can collect all the cash you are owed, providing a great patient experience, and creating your plan for what comes next for you and your partners. To learn more, visit kohahealth.com. That's K-O-H-A health.com. I am always amazed at the guests on the Ortho Show. They're incredible, unique stories. We have Dr. Javier Doralde, who's a private practice orthopedic surgeon who specializes in shoulder. He's in Atlanta. Uh, a remarkable story, an immigrant son who goes to Harvard. His father tells him, no, why are you going to Harvard? But yet goes to Columbia for medical school and residency, serves his country for four years in some of the craziest conflicts as the Cold War is ending and the Berlin Wall is falling and then the Gulf War starts and then comes back, does a shoulder fellowship with Dr. Biliani and starts really as one of the first shoulder specialists in Atlanta and then his time at the Atlanta Braves and now as the immediate past president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society. It's a remarkable story. I really love sharing it. I know you're going to love it. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another special episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We're coming at you live from Shoulder 360. We've been talking about it. Really one of the most coolest, innovative shoulder conferences in the world. Over 300 attendees, some of the most amazing international faculty. Speaking of which, we have Dr. Javier Duralde, who's an orthopedic surgeon and shoulder specialist in private practice in Atlanta, who's the immediate past president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society. Javier, what a great, what a pleasure to have you here. Scott, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Oh, my pleasure. We've been talking, uh, talking about this since Hawaii at Tony Romeo's course, and we uh, had a great time there as faculty together. So thrilled to be with you here today and really talk about your remarkable orthopedic story. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So as we always do, we always like to start at the beginning. Where were you born? Where was orthopedics? Who was a doctor? Who wasn't a doctor? Tell us about it. So uh, my, <clears throat> my parents are immigrants from Spain, and my father was a general surgeon. He came to the United States in the early 50s, 1950s, to uh, do a fellowship at Emory University in Atlanta. And at the time, he was actually uh, active duty in the Spanish Air Force. And so he was supposed to come over for two years and stay and then go back. And after coming to the land of milk and honey, and uh, after having lived through the Franco era in Spain, he decided... He didn't want to go back. And so uh, he stayed and was exiled from Spain. Exiled from Spain, yeah. not going home. Not going home, which was very difficult because when he finished his training program here, uh, his visa was about to run out and he almost had to move to Columbia, South America. But fortunately, he was able to get accepted into a residency program. So he repeated his residency. And it's a very, very tough life. And then when he finished his residency... He had to work for the state for five years uh, because he was waiting for his uh, citizenship, you know, so he couldn't be in private practice. Amazing. Yeah, so when he finished his residency, he had three kids, 
And then I was born uh, number four. I was born in North Georgia. He was actually working at a tuberculosis hospital in the late 50s in North Georgia because for the state. And they still had tuberculosis back in the 50s, yeah. that's for sure. And so it was crazy. It was a different world. And so um, anyway, we wound up having seven kids. Seven of one of seven. And uh, when I turned five, he became a citizen, and that's when we moved back to Atlanta, and he started his private practice there. So we've had a lot of foreign medical grads on the show, and it's a challenge. You know, it sounds like dad's challenge was was greater than most. I mean, being exiled from your home country and then having to start all over again through a residency program and then to obtain U.S. citizenship is really quite remarkable. Right. Great story. And so... So, you know, as in all immigrant parents, right, they tell you that you got to go to school, you got to learn the language, you got to study, you know, hard, and you got to go to college and all those things. And, and most of the time they say, and we want you to go to Harvard. You actually did that. You know, you were accepted to Harvard and uh, graduated in 1979. But I guess your dad wasn't too happy about the idea of Harvard. Well, you know, my father was old school. And in Spain, they don't have an undergrad. You go straight from high school to your professional school. So my father never quite understood what a BA was, but he thought it was a total waste of time. And so also the tradition in Spain is that you go to college locally and you live at home. And so he thought we would all go to Emory and live at home while we were in college, which, of course, is not the American way. Yeah, no, it would have been a complete waste of time for one of my kids to go to Harvard. So I can't imagine that you you were quite understanding that process. (laughs) Well, so my older brother had to literally convince him that it was worth it for him to go to Harvard. So my older brother actually went there before I did. And then when I got to where I was applying for college, he said, well, you can either go to Emory or Harvard. Those are your two choices. So those are the only two colleges I applied to. Oh, that's what an amazing story. So Harvard it is. And obviously you do well there. Dad was a doctor. It sounds like there are other doctors in the family as well. Yeah. So uh, out of the seven of us, four of us went to medical school. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, so you obviously did well. You go to Columbia for medical school, which was not an easy feat as well. Uh, Tell us about your time at Columbia. So, uh, you know, my brother was sort of a trailblazer for me, and he went to Emory for medical school, and he hated it. And so he said, you know, you should think about Columbia. I have a lot of friends there that really like it. And so the thought of going to New York City really appealed to me. I thought this would be so cool to, to live in New York. And uh, so I went down there, and I immediately just immediately got a, just a great feeling for it. You know, the when you apply to Columbia Medical School, it's handwritten. They don't let you type it. And so you, so you immediately get that feel that even though you're in the big city and it's sort of in New York, um, you know, that it's, it's a warm place and they really, their heart's in the right spot. So, so I really loved it. I became totally intoxicated with New York City. I just loved living there. And so, um, so then I had the opportunity to stay there for residency, so I took it. So, you know, North Georgia to Boston, hanging out for Harvard for four years. Then you go to the big city for Columbia. When was orthopedics? When did that sort of, uh, when did the light go off? <clears throat> so it was interesting because, you know, uh, you know, I, I really, my father was a role model for me and I wanted to be a general surgeon. So I went to medical school thinking I'm going to be a general surgeon. And, you know, training in New York, you start to realize that nobody does general anything. It's like everything's super specialized, you know. And so anybody who I considered a role model in, um, in uh, general surgery was sub-specializing in something else. And I realized, okay, so this is not a field for the future. My father, God bless him, was he knew that general surgery was a dying field, and he said, you should go into orthopedics. And so it just so happened that I got into my third-year rotation, and you're randomly um, assigned to a, a, an attending for two weeks. And my attending was Dr. Near. 
who was like the world's most famous shoulder surgeon, and I had no idea who he was. But, you know, I found everything fascinating, very interesting, the stuff he was doing. And he had a very sort of odd personality. He's not a man of many words, but uh, he's a great teacher and uh, in some ways very European, a lot like my father. So I, I dealt with him very well because I was used to that kind of sort of autocratic, you know, person, you know, being uh, your role model. And so that's kind of what convinced me to, to go into. Well, that's uh, pretty serendipitous that you just happened to walk into the, the world's most famous shoulder surgeon who wishes to take you under his wing yeah. and then uh, off to Columbia for, for residency, which is amazing as well. So who was there at Columbian residency at the time? This was what, 85, late 80s or so? Yeah, late, yeah, mid to late 80s. So I started my residency there, yeah, in 83. Uh, so Frank Stinchfield was the chairman emeritus. He's the person that started the Hip Society. Uh, Hal Dick uh, was the chairman. He's a tumor guy. Um, Bob Carroll, who's one of the world famous hand surgeons, was there. Nassef Takar, who was one of the first Charnley fellows to come to the United States. And he actually taught near how to use methyl methacrylate. So it's kind of there's a living history going on there. So, so for Judy, you know, my mother. So Charlie was the first guy that developed the hip replacement. And they were using cement, which is methyl methacrylate. So the idea of hip replacements was out well before, you know, shoulder replacement. So it was interesting that... You know that they got together. That's where Doctor Near perhaps learned techniques that he could use for the shoulder. Yeah. So you know, up to that point, he had pioneered the the uh, humeral head replacement in the early fifties as a uh, treatment for fractures because they didn't have a good solution for fractures. But the dilemma of a socket, they couldn't really figure out how to fix the socket. And so in the late sixties, when Nas Eftekar came from England, uh, he taught Near how to use it. And so they started developing a, a total shoulder replacement based on that. So it's that cross-fertilization. It's really cool. Really cool. It's just so amazing. You know, even for me, you know, I started training in the 90s, right? Not too far after you, but uh, a little. you're a little older. But it's all good. And uh, I just remember it was just, it was so antiquated in what we were doing at the time, but that's what it was compared to, the options now for shoulder replacement is you go to Shoulder 360 and you go in the exhibit hall. Stem, stemless, anatomic, reverse. I mean, there's so many ways to do it now. It was unbelievable, you know, and the, and the we didn't really understand the anatomy of the shoulder well. So the prosthesis was a monoblock. It was just one piece and said, you know, two stem sizes, two head sizes. And you put it in and it didn't quite fit. And, and people didn't understand why it didn't quite fit till later, but you had to cheat. And so you had to kind of like, you kind of nudge it this way, rotate it this way to get it to where it looked good. And so that was part of what made it not such a reproducible operation. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, nowadays we, we make the, the shoulder replacement fit the anatomy of the patient versus back then, you know, you just stuck this thing in and you, you just hopefully it fit in whichever way it could using cement as well. But it was still surprising that patients could do pretty well. Oh. Well, compared you know? to what they had before, you yeah. know, which was terrible. So part of that's relative, too. You know, as, as we've gotten better, I think patients have gotten a lot more demanding, too, about what their expectations are. And so we sort of created that problem, but now we have to live up to it. That's awesome. Was Biliani there at the time? or was he, Yeah, you know? so Biliani was one of the young attendings. And actually, Evan Flato uh, was two years ahead of me in the residency program, so he was my chief. Um, I had kind of an interesting, circuitous route to the fellowship in that um, – you know, my father told all of us who were in medical school, said, well, I'm paying for your college, but, you know, you're paying for your own medical school. So the four of us that went, uh, three of us did Air Force, 
and my sister did uh, National Health Corps. And so uh, when I got to, I applied for the fellowship and shoulders with Nier and got accepted. And then I applied for an extra year of deferment from the Air Force, and they said no. Yeah, they will do that to you. Yeah, they said, you know, the needs of the Air Force come first, you know. So this was late 80s, and uh, things were heating up overseas in Europe, and uh, the Russians were scared to death of Ronald Reagan. And so uh, so I got shipped to NATO. So I was in uh, NATO for four years, and then I had to wait. And so I came back into the fellowship with Biliani because at that point, Nier had retired. Oh, fascinating. Now, it's, so if I recall, Dad was Spanish Air Force. Right. And so you chose the path of, of Air Force as well as Dad. And, I mean, this was the real deal. I mean, it was Gulf War at the time? Yeah, Gulf War happened when we were there. It was interesting. So we got over there in 88, and uh, my wife was active duty as well. We met in the Air Force. She was a family practice doctor. And so we go to a NATO base, and we get there. And suddenly we realized that uh, the Cold War was alive and well. I mean, it was unbelievable that we were afraid the Russians were coming over the wall any minute. And we said, you know, if people in the United States understood the state of readiness in 1988, they would have freaked out. I mean, it was the Russians were massing tanks in, in the southern part of eastern Germany. I mean, we were ready to go. I mean, it was it was no joke. I mean, it's and I really find that fascinating because a lot of people choose the path of, of going military to help offset the cost of school, but it's usually in peacetime. You know, you're hanging out, you're chilling, you're not worried about it. I mean, this was this was conflict. This was the real yeah. deal. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, we're blessed. You know, in the Air Force, the only people really in danger are the pilots. You know, so that's one thing. And as a physician, typically, no matter what service you're in, you're fairly well protected. You know, and it's an odd. It's an odd profession to go in uh, as a lifesaver uh, into a company whose job it is to kill people. You know, so it, it's a bit it's a bit of a, a weird situation to be in. But but it's fascinating. And, and I think partially too the fact that we were immigrants, we sort of felt like we wanted to pay back, you know, so pay back for you know, this great country we lived in and all the opportunities we'd had. And so I think we all felt the same way. and We're very proud about doing that. Did you see injured soldiers from, from the front that were being shipped back for you know, less urgent procedures or yeah, less, procedures? Yeah, less urgent. You know, so it, it was interesting in that, um, so we get over there in 88, 89, the Berlin Wall goes down. You know, Russia falls Crazy. apart. The Soviet Union falls apart. So we're like, yay, we won, you know. <laughs> and so then we thought, well, this, because literally uh, about every month we were in the field in full chem gear up to that point, you know, which... You think about how disruptive that is of your operative schedule. You oh know, it's just God. crazy. And so then suddenly we thought, well, this is going to, we're going to slow down in our terms of our training and all that sort of stuff. And then next thing you know, you know, Kuwait gets invaded. We go on full alert. And so then we had to open up contingency hospitals. So we spent like five months or so just opening contingency hospitals, getting ready to take casualties. And, uh, and uh, so that was interesting. But, you know, the Gulf War finished so quickly there were hardly there weren't that many casualties, so we saw a lot of people in the preparation. You know, people jump off a tank and tear their ACL or get in a fight and break their hand, things like that. Yeah. But but in terms of, we saw more injuries after the war than during it from landmines. So I mean, it's just remarkable. I mean, you sign up, you're in the midst of the Cold War, you're worried about Russian tanks coming in. Next thing you know, the Berlin Wall goes down. Thank you, Mr. Gorbachev, and then the Gulf War starts up. It's going to be this crazy thing. Turns out it wasn't as crazy. It ended quickly. But that what a what a crazy period of time over four years serving your country. You know, it kept going because uh, you know I left at that point when I so I told the Air Force, look, I'll stay in if you sponsor me for my fellowship. 
But at that point, you know, the typical government, there was they had too many orthopedic surgeons because things were drawing down and stuff. So they said, well, we can't justify keeping you and paying you. And so, um, so, you know, I left for the fellowship, but the guy that replaced me immediately got sent to, uh, Serbia and, uh, you know, to Bosnia Serbia, that's exactly and, right. and my friends who were in the Navy were in the, the, you know, the horn of Africa. So, oh, I mean, it right. just, it never ended. And, you know, obviously the last 20 years have been crazy that way as well. All right. So you sign up for the near fellowship, you know, uncle Sam calls and says, we don't really care about what your plans are. We're going to do our plans. And you stick around for four years, much longer than you had probably anticipated. And then all of a sudden, there's a change of leadership back at Columbia. You got Louis Biliotti, who turns out is the next world's greatest shoulder specialist. And, and you spend a year with him and his team. How was that? It was fantastic. I mean, it was the best year of training in my life. Um, you know, and, and the interesting thing is, you know, from a financial standpoint, it was very difficult to do this because by the time I went back, I had four children, you know. So suddenly you're on a fellow's salary and you're working all the time and it's crazy. But from an educational standpoint, it was fantastic because I had been operating independently for four years. I was the only orthopedic surgeon at this hospital. And I was already board certified, member of the academy, all that kind of stuff. I didn't need to have the knife in my hands. Like, you know, residents that you know, just are you know, really concerned about their ability to operate. Plus, I knew what I didn't know. And so the number of uh, epiphanies that occurred in the operating room when I'd be, I get to an op- the point of an operation where I had struggled on my own. And then I saw these guys that were just the masters of shoulder surgery, just kind of do it. I'd go, Oh my God, that's how you do it. And so it was great. I had a little black book in my pocket and I'd take copious notes on all these little subtle techniques, but it was a much, much better learning experience um, because of that. And, you know, the other thing was, you know, I trained at Columbia. So I thought, well, I know a lot about shoulders, you know, and then I went back to the fellowship. I realized they knew nothing about shoulders. You know, it was, it's a whole different world when you do a fellowship. And even in four years, there was, must've been significant advancements. And, and again, for our listeners, Columbia at the time was, was the Mecca for shoulder surgery. I mean, that's just the place. And I really find it fascinating. You know, most of us, it's medical school, residency, fellowship, going to practice. You had an opportunity to get a lot of reps in, in your military career. So you said it, I mean, four years of learning, you were already a skilled surgeon coming in, but you really needed to work on your skill set. I love that. I knew what I didn't know. And, and so that fellowship for you really it's like getting an mba later in career rather than just going to get your mba yeah it's the same concept and you know so in terms of what had changed probably the most obvious thing was that dr near did no arthroscopy and so and when i was finishing my uh residency uh you know dr biliani was starting to do arthroscopy and literally he had the scope in the shoulder and it'd be completely red and everybody would be looking at the screen, and there'd be multiple surgeons in there because everybody's trying to learn at the same time, and they'd be going, oh, 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 that's a bicep. I think it's a bicep. <laughs> it was about like that. I mean, it was just so, like, rudimentary. And then in the four years that happened when I, that, that passed, I came back, and they were just doing a chromioplasty, distal clavicle resections, you know, those sort of operations that you could do arthroscopically at the time and just very with great facility. Yeah. So we caught up. So it's 93 is when you're doing your fellowship. And I'm with Bill Levine. We're up in a residency together up at Tufts with J.R. Richmond, who's an outstanding arthroscopist. So we're, we're learning that just that same moment, you know, really had a scope. We didn't really have anchors and stuff. They were just coming out. But I'll share a great story. So Bill gets into the Columbia uh, Shoulder Fellowship. 
And at Tufts, we always had a guest, you know, a guest doc come on in. So we had Dr. Biliani come on in. So I got to do a hemiarthroplasty with Bill Levine cool. and Dr. Biliani up at Tufts. That was really, you know, a great, a great time. And the other funny story about Bill is he took the, uh, the Columbia Fellowship so I could get the Curl and Joe Fellowship because we both interviewed oh, really? Curl and Joe. Oh, that's yeah. funny. So we've been uh, best friends ever since. But well, you know, it's sort of a side note of that. His co-fellow, it was Pat Connor, uh, was, a, was, a, was a resident uh, in Charlotte, and I went up there to visit and do some cases with him when he was a senior resident. And he was, he was saying, oh, well, I've been accepted both at Curl and Joe, been at Columbia, and I can't decide what to do. I said, are you kidding? <laughs> Go to Columbia. <laughs> oh, that's classic. But no, it was uh, a great moment for us all. So, all right, so you got four kids. You've been in the Air Force. You're doing another fellowship. You're making like 40 grand a year, working 120 hours a week. And finally, your wife says to you, uh, Hobby, you got to get a job, right? right. <laughs> it's time to earn some money. So you go to Atlanta and you start private practice. Yeah, so I go to Atlanta private practice. And I have to say that one of the things that influenced me to not, well, a couple of things that influenced me to not go into academics. One was that uh, in Atlanta at Emory, they had no idea what shoulder surgery was. So I went down and interviewed with the chairman there only because I invited myself. And, uh, and he says, well, what do you do? And I said, um, I said well, I'm a shoulder specialist. And, and this guy was a great, um, a great chairman and a real dynamic person, but he, uh, people said he talked like Foghorn Leghorn, and he really did, you know. And so poor guy just passed away recently, but he was, a, he was very dynamic, great, great for that program. And, uh, and so he says to me, he goes, now, son, uh, are you a sports surgeon or an orthoplastic surgeon? And I said, well, neither one, really. You know, it's kind of an in-between. It's joint-specific. And he sits back in his chair. And then he looks at me and goes, well, boy, I just don't know where I'd put you. <laughs> and so uh, I went, okay, I got it, you know. And, uh, and plus, after having been in the Air Force, that, you know, where somebody else controls your resources yeah. and tells you what to do, and you can't have a PA, and, yes, you, you can't. So I said, you know, I really want to be in a situation where I'm in control. And most of the research I was interested in was um, clinical anyway. And I thought, you know, I yeah. can set up a mechanism to do this in private practice. And so, so I joined a, a large group there that was multi-specialty. Everybody was fellowship trained. And uh, they had one guy who had done his residency under Rockwood. And so was was a good shoulder person, but he primarily did hand. And so it was a, it was a good fertile ground for me. And, you know, if you, you, you said, you know, Columbia was the Mecca. Well, you can imagine that, you know, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Boston are full of shoulder specialists. Sure. And there were none in Atlanta. Yeah. And it's funny because the Columbia fellowship in particular, it's a, it's a brother and sisterhood that, you know, you're part of it. Everybody, you know, fights for each other. You all stay in touch. Yeah. You all keep in touch. It's really, you know, quite unique. And, and we all take it for granted now that shoulder is a specialty. But back in the day when you finished there outside of the, the New York area, literally the idea of being a shoulder specialist where you only worked on the shoulder was quite unique. It, it was totally unique in, in Atlanta. And so I got there and people said to me, are you sure you can make a living just doing shoulders? And, and so I got there in 93, and I, I could, I'll tell you that I was doing 100% shoulders in the year 2000. Yeah. It took seven years to build that practice to convince people. And, and so the typical thing that you see is under treatment of pathology, sure. where patients come in with a certain problem, and, and, uh, and the doctors go, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do for you. And, and literally, this was like Dr. Biliani was doing four of these guys on Tuesday. You know, it was yeah. a, a sort of stuff. You get there, and you go, no, we, there's a lot we can do. And so you start out, you know, helping 
your partners do the really tough cases and then gradually sort of develop your own reputation and then you finally start getting the virgin cases, not all revisions, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, everybody that these days they all come out of fellowship and they just expect they're going to be doing, you know, crazy shoulders right away. But back in the day, you still had to take your fractures. Right. You had to build a rapport. There wasn't social media. You had to go shake hands. You had to build a reputation. It, it's, it's a much easier, if you're good at it these days, you can establish your subspecialty much easier than it yeah. could back in the day. Yeah, I, I, I tried to do, you know, basically I like to teach. And so uh, we would teach the primary care people. We teach the physical therapists. They're a great source of referrals. And, uh, and then treat, teach other orthopedic surgeons in the area what, you know, the possibilities were, what we could do. You know, some things don't change. We're always pushing the envelope. And even today, we've got patients we don't have a good solution for. And it was, we had less tools back then, so it was even more the case where you'd be in the middle of operation going, okay, uh, how am I going to make this one up, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think community outreach still really works, you know, as you're a young physician trying to build a practice. So I think that's a great story for our younger listeners to hear. Let's talk about another one of your passions. And, you know, after a decade or so, uh, you had the opportunity to take care of the Atlanta Braves. And uh, you did that for about a decade. What was that all about? Yeah, I did it for about two decades. Two decades. Yeah, I 19 years I was with them. So um, so it was, it was interesting, and I think this is one of those stories of, uh, of you have to be open to opportunity, you know, because I finished my fellowship, and I said, I'm, I want to just be doing adult reconstructive shoulder work. I want to be doing arthroplasty, fractures, revision work, you know, cuffs, that sort of thing. And then I got to Atlanta, and one of my partners was the uh, head physician for the Braves. And so I had... Uh, done some educational things with him. I got convinced him to, to do a youth baseball uh, a course, and we had the Braves participate in that and all the little league coaches and stuff. And then about a year after that, uh, they had an opening on their staff, and I got a call out of the blue from the head trainer and said, would you like to join our staff? And I had never thought about doing that. I never thought about doing sports medicine. And so I said, sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, who could turn it down? You know, you figure it's a great opportunity. And, and sadly, you know, uh, I knew nothing about sports medicine. It's, it's, uh, it's a completely different area, you know. And, of course, you did a sports medicine fellowship, so you realize all the subtleties of it. And I think the people who don't do it don't realize, you know, all the issues. You know, can the, can the player play? You know, how serious is the injury? You know, what's, what are the repercussions going to be? That sort of thing. And so, uh, fortunately... The staff was great. Uh, you know, my partner was great in terms of teaching me. But you also start to look around, and especially when you're doing something that's very sport-specific, like baseball, it's very different from football and from swimming and tennis, that sort of thing, that it's hard to find a lot of literature on it, you know? So you're reading everything you can. You're learning on the job. And, and I can tell you that I felt comfortable, like I really knew what I was doing after about 10 years. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, there are sports-specific injuries, right? Baseball, you know, you think about the elbow, you think about the shoulder uh, and the throwing motions, and, and that's very different than other sports, and you're exactly right. And so you had this background of shoulder, which was, you know, really operative and diagnostic in office, and then a sports medicine fellowship at Curlin Job, for example, we were taking care of the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Angels, so we were in the, the locker rooms learning how to communicate talk to them, right? That's always an issue too, right? You're not your best friend. I'm here as your doctor. And all these secret rules that you need to learn so that you can become a part of the team and, and do your job. 
It's so true, you know, and baseball, I think, is the worst, you know, because like in Atlanta, for instance, one of my partners took care of the Hawks, and they would allow us to cross cover. So I go in the locker room, and a big deal. But like the Braves, I used to joke, they were like these uh, thoroughbred racehorses, you know, and if there was somebody different in the clubhouse, like the nostrils would flare, like, <laughs> who is this, you know? And you know, they, they'd freak out. They might have a bat at bat, and they blame it on, you know, something in the clubhouse. It's so true. And, you know, uh, and, and it's just so funny because, I mean, these baseball players have been coddled their whole lives. I mean, if you're really good from Little League on, you know, so it's like if you dropped them off at an airport and asked them to go find a plane, I don't know if they could get on. Right. Because you've got managers, they got agents, they got all these people that are helping them out. But uh, there's a lot of nuance to caring for professional athletes. And, and it's a much more laborious than most people think. Uh, it's very difficult. You know, so it was funny because I'd been doing it for about 10 years and the, and the White Sox changed their staff. And actually the Rush group took it over. And so uh, one of the Rush guys came up to me and goes, uh, what's your uh, best piece of first advice, you know? And I said, uh, I said, uh, I said speak uh, as a unit, you know, so that every person on the medical team says the exact same thing to the player. Because if they hear one thing slightly different from somebody, they freak out. And so it's so true, all these nuances of, of how you manage these players and setting their expectations and working with them and understanding their egos and stuff, um, very important. But like in the office, you know, you see one of the players and, uh, and then you'd immediately walk out, you have to call his agent. Yep. And then you have to call the team trainer and then you might have to call somebody else, you know, to just to kind of go over everything with them. And it, was, it took 20 extra minutes after you've walked out. And then out. your cell phone's always on for whatever, right. whenever. Totally. Three, three o'clock in the morning. My my son's got a temperature of one hundred two, and he's three years old. What should I do, Doc? Right. So it's uh, it's it's definitely. But I'm sure you absolutely loved it. Passion of yours, and was just a great great I, two decades. I, I loved it, and I learned so much. And like you said, it was you know you're not their friend, you're their doctor, but um, you know it's an opportunity to learn. And uh, and the games were fun. My wife loves baseball, so it was, you know I could multitask with the family there. And, uh, and, and I absolutely loved it. But, you know, with, with all these professional teams, you know, it all comes to an end at some point. Yeah, change of ownership, whatever it may yeah. be. But, it, uh, you know, but then you can relax a little bit. And then you can take care of the people and all the stuff that you've learned. And you don't have to make all these extra phone calls. And all of a sudden, you know, you're in the sweet spot in, in taking care of patients. And I want to talk about one of your other passions. You're the immediate past president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society. I mean, I love that, that, you know, as a primarily a private practitioner, uh, you still had passion for all of these things, including being a member of society and education and all that goes, goes with it. Just give us a short sort of synopsis of, of your love and passion for ASCS. So, uh, you know, that was always my dream to be a member of it, just a member of ASES. And I, I can tell you that it took it back in the day, it was a very small group. So in the 90s, early 2000s, there were 200 people in the organization worldwide. And so uh, it took me a long time. It took me nine years from the time I finished my fellowship before I got accepted. And it was like the greatest day of my life. I mean, it was just, you know, other than, you know, the yeah, birth the of my kids. children and then why yeah, we got all that stuff. So professionally, but, speaking, professional yeah. life. And so, uh, so it was just fantastic, you know, and I remember my first meeting, um, you know, it was just, I was like a kid in a candy shop and you're sitting in a room with all these people whose names are on textbooks and yeah. you've been like learning from all these years. And so I never, ever in my wildest dreams thought that I would be president, you know, but partially because, I thought, well, that's, you know, you represent the entire society. You should be somebody that's published 500, you know, articles and 
peer review stuff and and uh, and really be one of the most well respected authorities. And and, I, and at that time, I really didn't understand that um, there there are skill sets that allow you to do different things. Like you know, I thought that like if you were the very best attending at, uh, at a, in a department that you should be chairman, but you know, the being the best surgeon and the best person that publishes the most article doesn't mean you're the best leader and it's a different skill set, you know? So, um, I also felt like people, somebody from private practice shouldn't be president of any of these organizations just kept by principle. It should be some, somebody academic. And so I'd been member of another organization, um, the uh, Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons, and we're the parent group for CORE, so we published CORE. And uh, I had been in that, and um, and then I rose up the ranks to be president of that, which I didn't really expect. And then uh, and then this opportunity came up, and Frank Cordasco was really the person that pushed me, and, and I was his course chairman in 2019. And he said, you know, you should really think about being president, and I was giving him the I'm not worthy. And uh, he said, no, you, you know, you can do the job. And so uh, I thought about it, and I had, you know, been department chairman at our hospital. I'd run the the ORs. I'd run the, the system for you know large hospital system. I'd been president of our group, and so I'd, so I'd had a lot so of leadership, a lot, yeah. a lot of leadership. And I'd been president of George Orthopedic Society, so I had a lot of leadership uh, skills. And I thought, you know, I could do this. And um, and so I think it's also very important to push yourself, you know, to to make yourself grow as a person. And so to put yourself in slightly uncomfortable situations where you think, okay, I'm probably not the best at the world at this, but I think I can grow into it. And so I threw my hat in the ring and, uh, and people said, you know, put your hat in the ring and you might get in. And if you don't get in, um, you know, apply next year. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that, you know? And so I got really lucky. I applied once and, uh, I got it. And so the lineage, so it's a, it's a process, right? Two or it's three a years to get there. Yeah, it's a five-year. You're five on the presidential commitment. line for five years. And yeah. so, so you, the middle year, your third year, you're president. Fascinating. You know, this is, this is what I love about the Ortho Show. We bring on incredible people like yourself who just have such rich stories, you know, through their career. And, you know, Javier, it's just such a pleasure having you on. I, I, I love the, the immigrant story about dad not wanting you to go to Harvard because it's, it was going to be a waste of time. <laughs> the fact that you, you know, you pushed through and, and were at the beginnings of the world of shoulder and then served your country for four years and, and then your time with, with baseball and ASES. I mean, it's just a rich story and we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. I really appreciate the opportunity to tell it. No, it's wonderful. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the ortho show till next time.